This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, one of the early organizers of Burning Man, Stuart Mangrum, explores the psychogeography of the festival. His talk examines qualities of place and experience that make Black Rock City such fertile grounds for so many, year after year. This talk was recorded on August 6, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Hi, my name is Stuart and I'm a burner. I've been going out for a long time. I started going out in 1993, and I missed a few years, but uh, I'm still going out. And uh, I'm really happy to be here, because CIIS, I'm, I'm actually really uh, uh, really proud that uh, I just don't know anybody else who's either crazy enough or brave enough to actually go out and do coursework at Burning Man. So I have a, a tremendous respect for that. And when uh, Carolyn asked me to come and uh, present for people who are going out, is anybody here actually in the class that's going out? Yes, yes. Okay. All right. This is for you and for you. Okay. Perfectly, then it makes perfect sense for us to talk about psychogeography. Hello? <laughs> is that even a thing? Um, did anybody look it up on Wikipedia before they came here? Did any, is anybody actually fluent in psychogeography? Are there any psychogeographers here? Okay. Well, I'll have to tell you the backstory. This is a term that was actually coined by the, the letterists and the situationists, which were pretty strange cultural movements in Europe back in the 1950s. And it had to do with the notion of uh, the relationship between you and the place that you're in. So it was just a, a way of looking at the psychology and the geography and how they relate to each other. Uh, the situationist uh, Guy Debord, you might have heard of, wrote Society of the Spectacle. He defined it as the study of the precise laws and specific effects of the geographical environment, consciously organized or not, on the emotions and behaviors of individuals. So I just thought if anybody is going to go out to Burning Man for the first time and maybe do something site-specific, it's good to know about the site. And if you're going to be interacting with the people who are there, I figure the more you know about those people and where their heads are at, uh, the better it's going to be, the more successful you're going to be. Because it is a very special place. Uh, and, well, I mean, all places are special, aren't they? I mean, anyone who's done any traveling at all will tell you that every city has its own unique flavor, its own smell, its own je ne sais quoi, right? It's, you know, it's a mix of, of the geography, of the geology, of the institutions, of the values, the attitudes, the uh, demographics, the architecture. They all kind of combine into creating a very specific idea of place, and that undeniably influences the way that people are. It's culture. And uh, by that definition, or really by any definition, Black Rock City is definitely a city. Um, we used to joke about it being a city. It used to be a camp of stragglers out in the middle of the desert, and we, we dreamed of it being a city. Well, now it really is. Uh, for one week of the year, or part of a week, it is the third largest metropolitan area in the state of Nevada. After Las Vegas and Reno, it's 70,000 people live out there. Uh, I love this slide. This is a Black Rock City superimposed over San Francisco, over downtown Frisco. 
comparable in size. Uh, you will note, though, that there are far fewer hills in Black Rock City, which makes it uh, a lot easier to pedal your bicycle around. Uh, and that's my first uh, pro tip for anybody coming, bring a bicycle. And my second pro tip is take your bicycle home with you when you leave, please. Even if it's broken, just take it out of there. Don't leave it behind. Uh, so we're a city. We got a hospital. Yeah, pretty good hospital, I've been told. Up there with uh, state-of-the-art military field hospital. Got x-rays, operating rooms, and one of those fancy positive pressure systems so the dust doesn't get in your sutures. I've never uh, had to use it. I hope you don't have to use it, but it's nice to know that it's there. We have an airport, yeah. Uh, the airport's actually enlarged quite a bit this year. We've been trying to beef up air service into and out of our city because uh, there's a lot of road traffic. There's only two roads basically in and out of Black Rock City, and they're both two-lane blacktops. So the more we can do to get cars off the road, the better it is for everyone. So we got a radio station, newspapers, U.S. post office, a real U.S. post office. You can get your mail there. Library, bookmobile. I mean, all the things you'd expect in a regular city are there. But what's actually more interesting and probably more useful for us today is uh, what we don't have. I want to get a little bit into what's not in Black Rock City. First of all, the, the first thing you'll notice is there aren't any cars. I mean, there are cars. People have to drive there, and they have to drive back. But in between, we ask them to leave them parked and not move them. Uh, so it's a very, very pedestrian-intensive city. A lot of bicycles. Everyone has a bike, and including these uh, yellow bikes. Yeah, I know they're green for their yellow bikes, trust me on this. Uh, but the cars all stay parked for the duration. Okay, except for, these aren't really cars. What are they? They're not our cars. They're mutant vehicles, thank you, licensed by the Department of Mutant Vehicles. <laughs> we license a couple hundred of these every year, and they're part of the public transportation system. You can uh, get a ride uh, anywhere, as long as you don't care where you're going. <laughs> Which is, Usually the case in Black Rock City because there is no there. I mean, there's no center of town. That's one of the things we're going to talk about, that it's a very, very diffused environment. Uh, there's no main stage. There's no downtown. There's no you know, Elm Street and Main Street. Uh, pretty much anywhere you are can be the center. So it's, uh, it's a great place to take random journeys of exploration on maybe a giant uh, Victorian house. That's my, one of my favorite mutant vehicles is the, uh, the Never Was Hall. That is an actual Victorian house on a giant steam engine tractor. Uh, also noticeably missing a uh, shopping center. There's no big box stores, no little box stores, no mini mall, 7-Eleven convenience store, nothing. You can't, uh, got to do all your shopping before you get there and bring it all with you. The, uh, you can only buy two things in Black Rock City. You can buy ice, and that's so the food in your ice chest doesn't get all funky and uh, kill you. So that's a public health thing. And you can buy a cup of coffee in our cafe because, well, because coffee, right? <laughs> and because well, we, we like the convening aspect of a coffee shop. If you think about the cultural function of a coffee shop, it's, it's that magical third place that a lot of urban planners talk about. Not home, not work. It's the place you go to meet new people, hang out with old friends, and relax, right? Have a good conversation. It's funny, when, when we were first talking about being a city over a lot of late night uh, glasses of wine and cigarettes. Uh, Larry Harvey and I actually boiled it down to three things. We said, you know, what are the absolute essentials of city life? The three things that, that you would miss if you were not going to be in a city anymore, that you would have to have if you're out in the middle of nowhere. 
and a cafe, coffee shop was one of our uh, uh, three. Any guesses what the other two are? Newspaper. Newspaper, yes, and a toilet to read it on. <laughs> no, seriously, those are the three pillars of civilization. Right? Ask the Romans. Uh, having plumbing, you know, if you have to squat on a hole in the ground, that is not civilization. That is certainly not city life. These are art porta potties. And you'd be surprised how many people line up in front of them the year that they were out there. That's a mean trick, isn't it? That's just a mean, mean trick. You know, we have the other kind, too, that actually, you know, get pumped out. And all of that. Yeah. It's funny, though, when you think about it, isn't it? Well, so we, there were a lot of things we knew we didn't want. We were very conscious about not bringing them with us out into the desert. We did not want freeways. We did not want shopping centers. We did not want a sports arena. We did not want housing tracts. Uh, we didn't want any of that stuff. No office blocks. So we just left them all out. But it's funny. There, there are some things that we didn't even think that we needed. And we, when we found out we did, it was, well, duh, like a sacred space. This is uh, the temple. The first temple was built in 2000 by uh, Petaluma artist David Best and his crew. Space for reflection, for contemplation, for joy, for loss. Um, by the end of the event, that whole interior space is filled up with memories uh, of, of folks who've gone. And then it burns in a very solemn, very silent ceremony at the end of the week. As soon as we saw that, they were like, well, why didn't we think of that? <laughs> it was sort of like the community you know, provided it, and now it's like, well, we just have to have that. Right? even though we didn't plan for it. There are a lot of things we couldn't have planned for, and now we just take them for granted. Uh, like kids at Burning Man. We didn't know that we needed a, a place for kids to hang out but until people started bringing their kids, and they said, well, let's bring kids to Burning Man. So now there's a whole village called Kidsville where kids camp with their parents. They have a, a scout troop called the Black Rock Scouts, my personal favorite on Playa educational program. They give merit badges. They go out and do learning exercises all over the city. They go to the Black Rock Observatory and look at the stars. They do ride-alongs with the Black Rock Rangers. They go to Media Mecca and learn how to operate a camera, and they get merit badges. How wonderful is that? Considering that they're, most of them have to cut school to be there because <laughs> it's the first week of school for a lot of kids. Between you and me, a lot of teachers are cutting school to be there too. A lot of, a lot of people call in sick that week. Uh, but the, that first generation of Burner Kids has actually grown up now. I, and some of them are absolutely amazing. In fact, some of them have their own kids. They're now multi-generational Burning Man families. Some of us are old enough to have grandkids. Well, some of them are. Okay. Me too. Uh, another thing we don't have is a year-round address. This is what Black Rock City looks like most of the year. It's uh, the biggest dry lake bed in North America. Everywhere we just pack everything up and haul it all away, and the city disappears without a trace. Just like, what was that old corny movie? What was that called where the little Irish village pops up every hundred years? Brigadoon. It's exactly not like that at all, <laughs> except when it is. It's a little magic. Uh, if you went out there on other, other times of year, you might see people doing things very unburning, man. You might see people launching rockets. Great place to launch a rocket. You might see somebody trying to set a world land speed record. The, the current world land speed record was actually set in Black Rock Desert, over 700 miles an hour, faster than the speed of sound. You might see people in land sailors. You might see people driving in, what is that? Driving pickup trucks, heavily armed, shooting at a radio-controlled, armor-plated station wagon? No, that can't be real. That's, that's Photoshop. 
So before we get much further into where BlackRock City is today, what it has, what it doesn't have, I, I, I want to take us back a little bit. We're going to get in the Wayback Machine now. Go way back. Way back to the 80s. Okay. The 1980s, not the 1880s. Look at that 1980s hair. Is that like metal band hair or what? That guy is, uh, his name is Jerry James. And the fellow next to him with those big Bono sunglasses. Yeah, it's his friend Larry Harvey. And so way back in 1986, these two guys, both, uh, well, uh, Jerry's a carpenter, Larry's a landscaper. They just kind of got a wild hair one day and said, why don't we just knock together a wooden man out of scrap lumber and take him down to the beach and set him on fire and see who shows up? Two guys and a hammer. That's how Burning Man started. Um, interestingly, a lot of people showed up. Now, they swear they never saw this movie. And I pretty much believe them. Uh, they swear they had never been to Zozobra in uh, New Mexico, which is another big burning effigy flame thing that happens every year. Uh, I'm pretty sure they'd never been to Las Fias in Valencia, Spain, which is the world's biggest, oldest fire art festival where they burn like 400 of these things all in one night. Awesome. Um, but I believe him. Larry says it was just, it came out of nowhere. He said it was, a, it was just a completely random act of radical self-expression. Who knows? Who knows? He has a couple of stories about being a boy in his bedroom as a child in rural Oregon and standing one day like this and feeling like he owned the whole universe. I don't know. I think they were just basically trying to meet art girls. <laughs> These guys were carpenters. They wanted to meet some girls. So they wanted to do something already. That's my theory. That's just mine. But anyway, it caught on. Um, a lot of their other friends who were semi-employed artsy carpenters decided to get involved. And uh, the next year they dragged it back down to Baker Beach and they did it again. And you know, maybe 100 people showed up this year. And the next year even more people and more people and more people. That's a beautiful shot of the beach there. I love that. Until by uh, 1989, uh, too many people showed up. <laughs> well, by, 90, by 89, there were, you know, three or 400 people showed up. Because it had kind of gotten into the underground scene. People heard about it, right? Friends had started telling friends. And some of those friends were in a group of weirdos called the San Francisco Cacophony Society. And they had a newsletter that they distributed in all the coffee shops and laundromats and bars around town called Rough Draft. And they, they ran it in there that year. They said... Uh, in a section called Sounds Like Cacophony. Burning Man at Baker Beach. Come on down and see it. So it started to attract a lot of attention. Uh, by 1990, it attracted too much attention. Like the kind from the police and the fire department. And they said no. So the man had gotten a little too big, too weird, too dangerous for San Francisco. You could say that the psychogeography of San Francisco no longer matched the needs of the man. Because the man... The man only had one need. What does the man need? The man needs to burn, right? So you build a 30-foot burnable sculpture. You stuff it all full of burlap and paraffin and fireworks, and you don't get to burn it. What are you going to do? It sort of has its own imperative. It has to be burned. So maybe you get together with your friends and say, where could we burn this? And if your friends are members of the Cacophony Society, they might know a place. Hey, I know a place. I know a place that's like 100 miles from the nearest law enforcement officer that's on the world's biggest dry lake bed where there's absolutely nothing you can accidentally burn. Let's take it up there. So these two guys uh, were 
the, pretty much the two big movers and shakers in cacophony back then. The fellow with the big grin is uh, Michael Michael. The guy next to him is named John Law. And believe it or not, those are actually their real names. I didn't believe it myself until I demanded to see their driver's licenses. I mean, when somebody tells you his name is Johnny Law, it's kind of hard to believe. Anyway, uh, Larry had become a member of the Cacophony Society by this point. He's the guy with the Stetson hat over there in the swinging lounge clothes. That was a wake we did for Dean Martin before he died. <laughs> uh, and together they hatched this plan to drag it out in the middle of nowhere. But first, what was the Cacophony Society? The Cacophony Society was <clears throat> a randomly gathered network of free spirits united in the pursuit of experiences beyond the pale of mainstream society. And the best recruiting line ever, you may already be a member. Now, I looked up cacophony in Wikipedia for some reason the other day just to see what was in there, and I was shocked to see that it was listed as an art movement. Because I'll tell you what, if you'd come to any of us back in the 90s and told us we were artists or an art movement, you probably would have got a knuckle sandwich, or at least a Melvin, or at least, you know, some really, really hard looks and cold shoulder. We never thought of ourselves as artists, you know. Uh, weirdos? Sure. Uh, freaks? Free spirits? Pranksters? Uh, if, if anything, there was an anti-art streak within Burning Man that's very Dada. Dada was kind of a big deal. We were all very, very fond of, of Dada. And uh, you know, Dada's position was that anything of, of beauty that doesn't advance the human spirit should be destroyed, right? Art is, <laughs> art is bad. <laughs> Let's go against art. Um, that sort of thinking actually came from their predecessor group. Well, we're, get, we're just going way back now. We're just zooming out. Uh, the Cacophony Society had sprung out of an earlier group called the San Francisco Suicide Club. These guys. Which was started back in the 70s by this guy named Gary Warren, who uh, is responsible for a lot of this, these bad ideas and weird thinking. He, uh, he ran a, a free store called the Gorilla Grotto, and he ran strange events through a program called Communiversity that was late 60s, kind of an anarchist, yippee digger, hey, let's have our own university thing, right? It was, a, it was a, anybody could run a class of any kind. And he ran classes in how to be a weirdo. A uh, little bit hippie in there for sure, but, but not all hippies are flower children. This is the other end of the hippie spectrum with a little bit more about changing culture and creating culture and <clears throat> tearing down the old world. So Gary Warren, pretty uh, influential fe uh, feature in all of this story. But this, the, the story behind the Suicide Club is pretty weird. They were actually founded based on a short story by Robert Louis Stevenson of the same name. It's about a bunch of people who all sign a contract where, where they agree to be randomly murdered at, a, at an unknown time in the future. With the idea that they will all live every day as if it were the last day of their life. And thus squeeze all the juice out of the, uh, the juice pop. Uh, what does it say? The bearer has agreed to let all worldly affairs, to get all worldly affairs in order, to enter into the world of chaos, cacophony, and a dark Saturnalia, to live each day as if it were the last, and is a member in good standing of the Suicide Club. Um, not surprisingly, the, uh, wow, pretty intense. <laughs> That's pretty intense. Not surprisingly, it didn't last all that long. The Suicide Club did not enjoy a long life. I, but it did uh, give rise to the Cacophony Society, a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit more, I would say, light-spirited, without all that dark energy around it. 
and a lot more out in the open, too. Suicide Club was very intentionally underground and kind of a closed society. Uh, Cacophony went the other direction and said, why don't we have a monthly open recruiting meeting where anyone can show up and pitch a meeting, pitch an idea? Why don't we have a newsletter so people can find out about us? It was, uh, you might say, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Radically inclusive. Anybody was welcome. Anybody was welcome to not just show up, but to actually do an event. And Cacophony voted with its feet. If they liked your event, they'd go. If they didn't like your event, no problem. You do it alone. Um, some events were actually very popular. And lots of people showed up. Like this one. The, the, anybody ever seen the salmon swimming upstream? The Beta Breakers? Been doing it every year for like 20 years on Hayes Hill. <laughs> Everybody's going downhill. <laughs> these guys in these, these nasty kind of rubber salmon suits going uphill. Then they spawn at the top. It's really pretty funny. Uh, yeah, that's one where people just kept showing up even after, long after all the original players are, have moved on to other things. It's like these suits are now these heirlooms that sort of have lives and identities of their own. They get passed on from one freak to another. And Every year, the salmon run. One of these years, I swear, I'm going to go out there with like fly fishing gear. <laughs> big hip waders. See if I can catch one. Uh, yeah, there's another one. Anybody ever seen too many Santas in one place? Yeah, yeah it started as a cacophony event. It started with 25 Santas on a bus and, and magic and like these super, super cheap Santa suits that we got from so the Oriental Trading Company. They were like $24 with all the accessories, like a cardboard belt and this like scraggly white beard and all that. Uh, now I think there's one in like every city in the world. They're, they have a SantaCon in Antarctica now. That's how big it is. You know, it's funny. A, a couple of years ago, I helped put together a book about the Cacophony Society called Tales of the San Francisco Cacophony Society. It was on, uh, at Alaska Asp. And one of the great, the best review I read of that book, the weekly reviewer said, when he's referring to the relationship between Burning Man and Cacophony, he said, Burning Man was the child that devoured its parent. And in a way, that's really true, because by 2000, Cacophony was kaput. There was no more Cacophony, and Burning Man was still going strong. But by that same logic, I would say that SantaCon is the child that stole its parent's car burned down its parents' house, took a shit in its parents' bed, emptied the parents' bank account, and broke its parents' heart. Once again, sorry. So the SantaCon, what does SantaCon and uh, you know, the Salmon Run have in common? They're both appropriations of public space, which is a really big deal. So many cacophony events were all about just kind of taking space and using it for Purposes other than that for which it was intended. Uh, Bart Lounge, same story. You could turn a Bart car into like a swing and a lounge with karaoke and a bubble machine. Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, or to, how about this? How about to break into like a, a, a closed up, abandoned Cold War missile silo and turn it into a post-apocalyptic soiree? Or even in the streets. We did a, any number of, of spy versus spy or hunter killer games, you know, or you'd... you'd Try to pick out the other opponents from strangers, and sometimes get it right, and sometimes not get it right. Oh, excuse me, I'm really sorry. You don't have the. That's not the briefcase. That's just a briefcase. Sorry. Uh, Urban Iditarod. Anybody ever see one of these? This is an amazing event. Uh, it was just like the regular Iditarod in Alaska, except with shopping carts instead of sleds, and with uh, people pulling them instead of dogs, and bars. Uh, they still do it in other cities. Actually, Chai Diderot is now the big one in Chicago. Love them. They keep it going on. 
Uh, or maybe it's just crashing somebody else's parade randomly just to confuse them. Uh, this is uh, Clowns for Christ. I don't. I can't explain it. I, uh, this is one of my favorites. This is the uh, Fantasia protest. Like, let's just pick an innocuous children's movie and have a really violent protest in front of it. <laughs> like, you know, all that Mickey Mouse stuff? Satanism. You know, those dancing hippos? Uh, kind of uh, uh, unfair representations of people of size. Or my favorite sign here is, my four-year-old had nightmares. This one actually got local press. <laughs> And it turned into national press. It became a thing, right? This is when a lot of people discovered the power of the media prank, right? Because as soon as you get one piece in print, you can show that to everybody else. And they're like, oh, it's been printed somewhere. It must be real. That uh, served well in other groups as well. The Billboard Liberation Front was, I would say, Cacophony's uh, sister organization, another spawn of the Suicide Club. Uh, with a long history of climbing up on billboards and changing them. All of this appropriation of space and twisting it into some other use, these you know, French intellectuals would call it a détournement, which means hijacking, right? And it's a, a classic technique of, uh, of the situationists for kind of taking control back of the city. You know, they looked at uh, psychogeography as a, very much a critique and a dialectical tool for looking at how cities were wrong, how they kind of sucked the life out of people. Uh, and they, look, they came up with techniques for kind of reclaiming that and uh, not being a victim of whatever decisions people had made in the past, right? Whether it was commercial or whether it was traffic control or whatever. So, uh, yeah, these two guys are the Lennon and McCartney of situationism. That's uh, Guy Debord and uh, my hero, uh, Roel Vanagam. And uh, the other technique that they talked about was called drifting, which is what they're sort of getting at in this quote. A friend recently told me he enjoyed wandering through, the re through Germany while blindly following a map of London. I just love that. And uh, Cacophony actually had a, a set of events like that too called zone trips, where you basically just pick a place on the map and just go there as if you knew nothing about it. Even if you did know something about it, you just pretend it's a completely different place, like it's in a different dimension, and see what happens. Uh, if anybody in Cacophony ever admitted to a, uh, any sort of an influence, and, and there were a lot of people who thought they were really unique, you know, special snowflakes, everybody liked Ubu, I'm just saying. So, everybody here familiar with Ubu, Jari? Like, probably the craziest, most ridiculous Dada theater ever. Just completely nonsensical. Okay. I made it all cacophony, cacophony, cacophony. I got to be fair, there were other groups that went out there along with us. Back in the 90s, the San Francisco scene, all these scenes were all tangled up together. And so you knew people in all these other groups, like the Subgenius Society uh, was one. Uh, the First Church of the Last Laugh, they still do the, uh, the St. Stupid's Day Parade every April 1st. Anybody ever go to St. Stupid's Day? What day is it? What day do they, do they march on? April 1st. Okay, April Fool's Day, St. Stupid's Day. Where do they meet? At the Pointy Building at noon. That's all you need to know. Go to the Transamerica Pyramid, April 1st at noon, and, and you can be part of the St. Stupid Day Parade. How about the, uh, those, those folks down in the bottom? You recognize them? Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. They were all over the plot. For some reason, when I started the newspaper in Black Rock City in 93, my first three volunteers were all drag nuns. You would walk into our press room, and there would be all drag nuns. 
like, hello, can I help you? Uh, wonderful, wonderful, uh, interesting people. Um, there was also a big machine art contingent. A lot of people used to be in survival research labs. Mark Pauline himself thought Burning Man was stupid, never went. But a lot of the people who came up in his shop, like Cal Spelitic, like Christian Risto, like Scotty Chapman, Chip Flynn, uh, people who are, went on to have great careers in machine art, all came out to Burning Man and did stuff like this. So there was a, a little bit of the aesthetic came out of that very, very brutal, sort of a very punk aesthetic of machine art. And uh, I had to mention this guy. This guy's name was Dave Warren, named Flamo. And he was like an aging carny who was kind of like the last flame eater in San Francisco. The, the art had almost completely died out by the 1990s, and he kind of single-handedly brought it back. He went out in 80, uh, 86, or 90, excuse me, the first year and lit the man himself. And now, uh, you go out to Burning Man, you'll see a lot of fire art. I mean, a lot. The fire conclave, which happens before the burning of the man, is, I think, pretty sure it's the world's largest uh, gathering of fire dancers ever. There's like hundreds of these people out there. So anyway, those are some of the other influences. But wow, we are totally getting lost in the weeds. I know I promised you Psychogeology. No, wait. Psychogeography, right? They're really, really easy to get mixed up. Uh, so what does any of this have to do with Burning Man today? I promised you psychogeography. I promise we're going to get there. The reason that I've been talking about all these influences and all these first pioneers of Black Rock City is psychogeographical in nature. Uh, as this wonderful fellow from the Lettrist International said, all cities are geological. You can't take three steps without encountering ghosts bearing all the prestige of their legends. We move within a closed landscape whose landmarks constantly draw us towards the past. And that's true even in a temporary city. Even in a city that we tear down and pack up and take home every year, it's still strongly influenced by the people who went there first, by the people who are still going there. It's built by, it's kind of a consensus hallucination every year, but it reflects the people's minds who hallucinated it. So, back in the story, where did we leave off? We left off in 1990. Man built, man doesn't burn. Man wants to burn. <laughs> Maybe the universe, though, didn't want the man to burn. It was funny, when they, they couldn't burn him on Baker Beach, they didn't know where to put him. Nobody had a warehouse, nobody even had, he wouldn't fit in a garage, so they put him in a parking lot and paid the parking fee. But it <laughs> For a car, right? But it turned out he was, he was like eight feet too long for the parking space, so the owner of the parking garage came and chainsawed off the legs. <laughs> so before they dragged him out to the desert, they had to kind of rebuild him and put some new legs on him. But he did want to burn. Uh, there was a style event I mentioned called a zone trip, where you just go somewhere, right? The, the first zone trip was to Covina, California. Who would go to Covina, California? Only if you pretended it was a fantasy place that you'd never been to before and were able to see it through the eyes of an alien visitor. That's kind of what they did. So the fourth zone trip was to Black Rock Desert. Uh, and the guest of honor was guess who? A 30-foot wooden man stuffed full of pyro. Wandering out into the desert, if you think about it, it's kind of biblical, isn't it? You know, like pillars of fire and eating locusts and all that stuff. I mean, people have been going out into the desert for visions for a long time, including... Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, it's romantic. It's dangerous. It's a little crazy. This, by the way, was center camp the first year. It was a folding table, uh, a hand axe, and a quote from T.E. Lawrence. That's it. Now, the place itself, I got to mention the place itself because in psychogeography, you got to look at the geography. 
And this place is really like no place any of us had ever been before. Uh, I mean, a lot of us have been camping before. I grew up camping. But I'd never been camping in a place with uh, 50 knot winds that could rip all your tent pegs out of the ground and shred all your gear before you could say Jack Spratt. I'd never been camping in a place with no trees, no shrubs, no rocks, no wildlife, no nothing. I mean, even just getting your tent pegged out was difficult. Right? There's nothing to tie off to. Uh, dust storms so bad you can't see your hands sometimes. Rain that turns everything into uh, really impassable mud. Hail storms, lightning storms. Uh, really, by any reasonable standard, completely uninhabitable. Uh, or, as we now call it, home. <laughs> Once upon a time, many, many thousands of years ago, uh, it was a really big lake. Lake Lahontan. It's the Paleo Lake that went all the way from... Uh, it covered a very, very, very large part of Nevada. The deep spots... We know where the deep spots were because they still have water in them. They're called Lake Tahoe, Mono Lake, and uh, Pyramid Lake, or where the deep spots were. The rest of it is now what they call playa or a pluvial lake. I just learned that word lately, pluvial. What does that mean? It means when it rains, it's a lake, and when it doesn't, it's a desert. Nobody knew what they were in for. Uh, just about everything that could fail, failed. Uh, two people had the great idea to buy army surplus parachutes. Turned out to not be a great idea. Parachutes are kind of like the worst possible thing. You get a good wind in there, what does a parachute do? Flies away, carrying everything that is attached to it. Yes. Uh, but nobody died. The man burned. And against all odds, uh, people started coming back, telling their friends, and voila, fast forward, that's what it looks like today. Rather high density. So, we covered some history, some influence, but what about the people? Or to use a technical term from psychogeography, what's the vibe, man? Um, well, luckily for us, uh, Burning Man founder Larry Harvey, he was the guy with the Bono glasses. He has done some work on this that we can leverage. So let's talk about the 10 principles. Now, to be honest, if I, just, if I had just titled this talk, The 10 Principles of Burning Man, you would not have come. So I snuck it in on you. How about that? Um, the 10 principles... Frequently mistaken for Ten Commandments. But if you read them, there's not, a, there's not a thou shalt in there anywhere, or a thou shalt not, right? They were not developed out of, like, you know, they didn't pop out of somebody's head and say, let's do Burning Man this way. They were actually, Larry didn't write them down until, like, 13 or 14 years after having gone to the desert. So they're very much descriptive rather than prescriptive. And the, the intention was basically to... It's a work of sociology, basically, looking at the community and saying, what do these people value? Uh, the intention of it was people were asking us how they could do their own Burning Mans. And rather than here sign this franchise agreement, we took a different approach. It was like, well, if you can do it like this with these values, then you're Burning Man. Great. So it's turned out to be a very useful document for us in that respect. And I think it's, I'm hoping it'll be useful for you to understand where people's uh, heads are. Radical inclusion. That sounds like cacophony, doesn't it? You may already be a member. It's funny how many of these really you can trace directly back to cacophony values. That notion of openness and inclusion and anybody being able to do an event still baked very deeply into what Burning Man is all about. What this means in practice, for those of you who haven't been yet, it means that um, unlike any other city you've been in, strangers are going to smile at you and say hi. They're going to shake your hand or they might even want to hug you. That's how friendly people are. 
people are open to new people and new experiences, which can be very startling for somebody who's lived in a, another city. Second uh, in our list, these are not in any particular order, is uh, gifting. People talk about, you know, a lot about living in a mindset of abundance. Well, gifting is how it manifests. And in my mind, gifting is also very closely related to radical self-reliance in that you got to take everything. You always end up with a little extra. That's on the one hand. So you always got a little something extra to give. But no matter how well you plan, you always forgot something. So this is like one of the most magical forms of gifting to me is like, holy crap, I forgot this thing. Where am I going to find like a quadruple A battery? Nobody has quadruple A batteries. And right then somebody will walk by and say, hey, does anybody need a quadruple A battery? It's just weird. One type of gifting. Decommodification is kind of our secret weapon. It's mistakenly, you know, a lot of people say it means eh, it's just no commerce. It's not what it means at all. Uh, it's not about not being able to buy and sell stuff. It's about not being inside your consumer lifestyle for at least one week of your life, right? It's a bubble. We create a bubble, though, where because you can't buy anything and because you don't have any brands and because you don't get pushed any ads, that whole sort of fake life that exists in advertising, you're cut off from it. That's what the, the situation is called, the spectacle, right? That, that sort of unholy marriage of advertising and politics and mass media and now social media that you're just bombarded with all the time, right? It makes people actually live in, in the moment and with the people that they're with. You, you can't, you know, you, how much of your life in, the, in this city to go through solving problems like this, right? How, imagine what a panic you'd be in if you left the, office, left the house without your wallet, without your purse, right? You're, you're powerless. You can't deal with situations. After, after a day or two in Burning Man, you're like, where did I leave my wallet? I don't know. I, ho I hope it's in my gear there somewhere because I'm going to need it when I leave here, right? The point is you, you get used to actually not being able to solve a, not being able to replace an interaction with a transaction. And it has this tremendous multiplying effect on that kind of natural openness and friendliness that's there already. It makes people actually talk to each other and sometimes do crazy stuff together and come up with new ideas. Radical self-expression means that you're going to be in an extremely tolerant place. Because a lot of people are expressing themselves, too. And a lot of people are expressing themselves kind of for the first time. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Like, the first step in a lot of people's Burning Man experience is realizing that, wow, I could do whatever I want to, right? I could actually do something creative. I mean, how many people in this world are told pretty much from when they learn to walk that they can't be an artist? You can never make a living as a writer, right? Get a real job. Get a day job. Get a backup job. And how many people just accept that as their own internal narrative, right? And a lot of people get out to Burning Man and they're like, well, shit, they were lying to me. <laughs> Maybe I could do some of that myself, right? So you're in, in a space where a lot of people are trying that out for the first time. A lot of people making mistakes. A lot of people making you know, bad art. Sometimes Burning Man is called the Special Olympics of art. <laughs> but the, the point is that it's very tolerant, right? We're all doing it together. We're all, we're, all, we're all doing it wrong. We're all figuring out how to do it at the same time. So that's what we do. Makes people willing collaborators, willing audience. Now, I got well, to warn you, though, one, one potent form of art at Burning Man is heckling. <laughs> so if you see somebody with a bullhorn making fun of your performance, just understand that that's their form of radical self-expression, too, or my, I mean, his form of radical self-expression. Communal effort is really essential. You can't do, all this, you can't do any of this stuff alone. That's, that's, I think, a function mostly of the desert survival situation. 
we learn very quickly that we have to rely on each other or we could actually die out there, right? And that leads to some amazing works of collaborative uh, effort. You're going to find no shortage of people to play with. In fact, you may have trouble keeping your game discreet from other people's games. Uh, Expect for somebody else's play to maybe take over your play and uh, be prepared to, uh, to go with that, flex with that, adapt to it. There was this guy, Hakeem Bey, back in the 90s, he wrote this book called Taz, The Temporary Autonomous Zone. It said Burning Man was a Taz, and people still use that, and it's a bunch of crap. Burning Man has never been autonomous. It has always been part of the United States of America, the state of Nevada, and the county of Pershing. Uh, I mentioned before Burning Man is a Leave No Trace event. I've been told it's the largest one in the world, at least in the States. But what does that mean in a psychogeographical sense? What does that mean in the mindset of the peoples? In terms of attitude and values, it means that the people who've, who've been there for a while and have gotten used to this environment, they're very, very conscious about what we call MOOP. What is MOOP? It's anything that shouldn't be on the desert when you leave. And when you're first going out there, you're not really thinking this way necessarily, but anything that hits the playa, people are going to be on your ass to pick it up. If you, if you drop a cigarette butt, Expect to be, expect to be uh, treated like you were wearing fur in San Francisco, right? Or worse. Uh, if you, uh, you know, there are certain types of costumery, is why I'm bringing this up, that are, that are extremely, by nature, moopy. So if you're wearing feathers or sequins or glitter or anything like that, people are going to give you a hard time about it. Because inevitably, wind is going to come up, blow some of that shit, and nobody's going to find it, and it's going to ruin the place, right? We like to leave no trace. I mean, leaving no trace, let's face it, is, is an aspirational goal. There's always going to be a little something, something, right? But we go to great lengths and stay for months afterwards, picking up every little last bit of sawdust, every little last wood splinter, staples, all that stuff, right? This is the goal is to leave absolutely nothing. Participation, no spectators. Used to be our battle cry. Used to see that all over the place. No spectators. No, stop looking at me. You know, at a certain point, that becomes ridiculous, though, because as a performer, you got to have an audience, right? Somebody's got to look. Actually, the most ridiculous extreme of that was a fellow named Bill Binson. Was one of our one of our guys back in the day. He used to like to go up there and do these events. He called Desert Sight Works, where he's a photographer and he'd set up these elaborate photo shoots with costumery and situations and personas. And you get all these people involved in doing these photos. Somebody looked around one said and said, there's no audience here. So they created a designated audience role. So they have one person who is like the ritual observer. He just has to sit there in a chair and not say anything or do anything. Hey, audience, how you doing? Cool. Um, anyway, participation, that notion of participation means people actually do things at Burning Man. It, it means that you get a lot of yes and thinking. <laughs> you get, Another thing that's very different from other cities. You come up with a crazy idea, people are going to go, they're not going to do that. They're going to go, yeah, and let's make it crazier. Let's do it on the moon. Curiosity and a willingness to try new things are part of that. Uh, immediacy, principle of immediacy. Fun fact, when, when Larry Harvey first wrote the principles, he came back with only nine principles. Everybody said, what's up with that, Larry? You can't have nine principles. Go back up the mountain and don't come down until you got a 10th principle. And he came down with immediacy. And we're glad he did. He says it's his favorite. It's one of my favorites too. It means, uh, what does it mean? It means one of the best things about Burning Man is that it's real. 
and it's happening in real time, and it's happening really between you and me without a screen in between us or a pair of oatmeal boxes and a string or, you know, it's immediate. It's, it's there. It's real. It's now. It's in the moment. There's no, that means also that, once again, I said this before, but there's no, there's no center stage. There's no roster of acts. There's no downtown. It means also that wherever you are is where it is happening. You know, like the mythical idea of the, what the axis mundi or the world tree. It's like what tree is any tree is, right? Where's the center? It's anywhere you are. That's what the center is. So that to me, is one of the most amazing things. It means that things can happen completely unexpectedly and just seem completely normal. That you can meet complete strangers and within minutes be plotting things together that turn out to be just magical. Wherever it is, there you are. Uh, Finally, remember it's a blank slate. And do not feel too constrained by anything that I have said here because I am just one guy. And it's a city of 70,000 people. And each one of them has their own valid, legit, Burning Man experience and their own opinion about Burning Man, and you're going to be one of them, and yours is just as reasonable as mine. Uh, Radical self-expression means that it's coming from you, the real deep down inside you. That word radical is frequently misunderstood. We tend to associate it with people wearing berets and throwing Molotov cocktails, but if you look at the word, it really just means from your inner self. So when we talk about radical self-expression, it means the real, real you, not something you're trying to impress somebody with or trying to sailor to a market It's what's coming out of your heart. So only you know what can come out of your heart. So listen to it. If you remember that, you're going to do great. Thank you very much. I'm Stuart. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard... Find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.